Well, good morning, beloved. Ah, oh, some of y'all are awake. Good morning. Yeah, good to be in the house of the Lord. Good to be the house of the Lord uh, this morning and gathered together as God's people worshiping uh, Christ, our matchless Savior. Uh, I'm Pastor Thabiti, one of the five pastors here at Anacostia River Church. And on behalf of the church family, again, let me add my word of welcome, particularly those who are visiting with us for the, the first time. We're glad that you're here, and uh, we pray that you're encouraged and blessed as we worship Christ our Lord together. Uh, also, let me say, uh, on behalf of Miss Phyllis, uh, a thank you to the church family. She called this morning to ask to convey thanks to the church family in the way that you guys have encouraged her, prayed for her, and served her family in the loss of our sister, uh, Miss Vivian Ledbetter, whom we, whose life we celebrated this past Friday. And uh, Miss Phyllis, we want you to know you continue to be uh, in our prayers and in our love, and we continue to want to serve you in every way we can. The Lord be with you in that. Uh, Also, um, I just had a senior moment. I was looking at Matt, and I just forgot. I just forgot. That's that's what it was. I knew it was Matt-related. I knew it was Matt-related. Happy birthday, brother. Happy 54. Um, But it's interesting, as I've been praying through the directory this week and thinking about birthdays, I think we have a birthday in the church family every day for the first nine or ten days of this month. Uh, and so if you've got a birthday last week or this week, uh, just stand so we can give God praise for you, uh, for your birthday. I think there are a couple in the Steele family, and amen. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. And if I'm not mistaken, there's an anniversary today. Yeah? I'll email everybody and let you know who that was because they didn't come to church this morning. No, no, just kidding. No, but praise God for birthdays and anniversaries and um, all of his grace to us. Well, uh, if you've come this morning uh, for the first time, and even if you're a member for the first time, you know that we're, not a member for the first time, (laughs) you know that this morning we're starting a new series, right, Uh, called Remember Our Calling. Remember Our Calling. Uh, We have been a church for a little bit over a year now. And uh, we have made our way through the Christmas holidays and uh, spring and a move to this, this particular facility. And then we hit the summer with all the changes that the summer brings. Uh, and, and maybe it, there's, a, there's a kind of lull that grows in the heart as we get used to routine, as we get used to uh, gathering in a new space, as we get used to being uh, in the community. Uh, one of the temptations, one of the challenges to our our being in the community is the challenge of complacency, the challenge of ease, the challenge of routine. There are good aspects to that, right? So the scripture calls us to live a, uh, to seek to live a, 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 a life in all sort of peace and quiet and godliness. So that's good to routine. But what we don't want is for it to dull our zeal. We don't want it to cool our fervor for the Lord, and our service to the Lord. And so my burden in this series and the pastor's burdens in this series as we preach uh, really through the book of Titus and as we preach through what we call our five M's, five objectives we believe the Lord has called us to from the book of Titus as a church, what we're praying for is a quickening. What we're praying for is an awakening. What we're praying for is the Lord to breathe again on those things that are strong, those things that are hot, to fan them into an even higher flame. And we're asking him to strengthen our feeble arms and our feeble knees. We're asking him to breathe fresh strength into some areas that maybe have have grown a little saggy, have grown a little slack. 
And I trust that's different for each of us. Philip is, uh, uh, Philip, Peter is looking at me. I say saggy. He's looking at my stomach. You know, hey, that ain't right, brother. That ain't right. <laughs> but I trust it may be different for each of us. Areas where we are strong and hot. And areas where we have perhaps cooled. And that we need the Spirit's work, working in our lives collectively and individually. And so what we want to do in this sermon series is, again, think about these five things we believe the Lord has called us to as a church in this particular community and to press toward some individual application, to press toward us meeting with Christ in our own closets, asking him to inspect us, to encourage us, to bless us, to teach us, to lead us, to convict us, to do all the things that the Spirit of the Lord loves to do in the Lord's people that we might emerge from these five weeks strengthened and readied for whatever the Lord has for us in the coming months and years. Amen? Thank you, Peter. Amen? So that's what we're up to. Uh, If you're new this morning, um, it will help if you follow us in the Bible. This is the time where we give our attention to God's Word. As I said, we're going to be in the book of Titus. And this morning, we're going to be looking at three sort of small sections of Scripture in the book of Titus. And each of these sections have something in common. They each focus on the message of the gospel. In different ways, they summarize the gospel, and in different ways, they give us application of the gospel that I pray would be a blessing and encouragement to us and would motivate us in gospel ministry uh, as a church. So we're going to look at Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. If you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter, I'm referring to the big number on the page. When I say verse, I'm referring to the small number. So Titus chapter 1, big number, verses 1 to 3, small numbers. We'll look also at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. And I want us to sort of consider three points, one point from each of those passages. Before we get into God's Word, anybody have a page number on this? On page 998, if you use, oh, we haven't passed the Bibles out. If you need a Bible... Raise your hands, and there are some folks who will will happily uh, give you a Bible this morning to use. There's one up front, brother. Uh, Give you a Bible to use. If you don't have a Bible at home, we want that to be our gift to you. Uh, So please, without any sense of embarrassment or hesitation or anything, take that Bible with you. Write your name in it. That's your Bible. Get acquainted with what it teaches uh, and and seek the Lord in his word. So anybody else need a Bible? Hands up. And that's on page, what again? 998, 998. So as you get your Bibles and turn there, let me offer a word of prayer for us this morning. Father, there's something about beginnings that excite us. There's a newness in it. There's a a lightness to it. There's anticipation. There's hope. And this we know that hope in you is never disappointed. And so, Father, we pray that you would fill us with hope this morning, fill us with anticipation, create in our hearts a longing and a leaning toward you, Uh, create in our hearts a, a humility before your word that we might bring ourselves under your word, be instructed by your word, be helped by your word, be motivated by your word. Oh, Father, we know that you have called us into existence with a purpose, and we long to live out that purpose 
for the glory of your name, for the joy of our souls, and for the blessing of our community. So speak to us, O Lord, from the book of Titus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Titus, then you know that it's written by a man named the Apostle Paul. He names himself there in verse 1. The Apostle Paul was one of the early leaders of the early church, uh, a great, probably the greatest missionary theologian in the history of the church. He's written a considerable part of the New Testament, instructing new congregations and young pastors in how to sort of live together as Christian community and how to carry out Christian ministry. That's exactly what's happening in this letter. Paul is writing to a man named Titus. Titus is a kind of understudy of Paul. He's a pastor who's in a place called Crete, a little island nation in the Mediterranean. And Paul is writing specifically to Titus to instruct Titus in what he is to do in pastoral ministry what he is to be as a pastor, what he is to teach as a pastor, how it is he is to lead God's people as a community. Now, Crete and the ministry in Crete has two sort of um, similarities to our own church and our own ministry here. First is, this is a a new church, a young church. So in verse 5, Paul says to Titus, the reason why I left you in Crete is that you might set things in order and appoint elders in every church. So so Titus there is very much at the beginning of that work, organizing that church, getting that church moving, and on mission. But the other thing that he says about Crete, he quotes the Cretans down around verses 11 and 12 or so, verse 13, he quotes some things that the poets of Crete say about Cretans themselves. And they're unflattering things. This is a, a hard people. This is a tough neighborhood. This is a rough situation in which Titus is ministering. But that is no impediment to the gospel ministry. It's no impediment to the purposes and the will of God. And the main thing that Paul brings Titus' attention to, and the main thing that I want to bring our attention to this morning, is the message of the gospel. Running throughout this letter, woven throughout each chapter, is some reference to the gospel message itself. And all the things that Paul instructs in terms of how the Cretans are to live and how Titus is to minister, all of those things flow out of the gospel message. It flows out of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for our salvation. And so he calls Titus there to be dedicated to the message of the gospel, And he calls Titus to work out that message in the lives of his people. Several years ago, I was in uh, the United Arab Emirates with our good friend John Fulmer and his church there, United Christian Church of Dubai. And uh, during that visit, uh, John had a, um, a Canadian evangelist down doing a a training for the members of the church there. And I remember sitting with John as the evangelist opened up the training. He opened up the training with this question. He says, what do you think is the greatest hindrance to the spread of the gospel? And people raised their hands and offered a lot of very good answers. Fear of persecution. It's a Muslim nation, so fear of 
jail time or worse. Inadequacies that people feel in terms of their knowledge of the scriptures. Concern that their Muslim neighbor would know the Quran better than they know the Bible. Opportunity. I mean, there were lots of answers given. And he, he wrote each one on the whiteboard and, and made note of each one on the whiteboard. And it, with each answer, we were all kind of nodding and agreeing and, and searching harder for a, a yet better answer. And after we had sort of given all our answers and, and spun out our wills, he said this. Struck me like lightning. He says, I think the greatest impediment, the greatest hindrance, the greatest barrier to the spread of the gospel is our lack of confidence in the gospel. That deep down in our souls, we often struggle with really believing Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That deep down in our souls, we're often tempted to think we need the gospel and something else. That we need some clever strategy, that we need some clever packaging, that we need just the right circumstances, that, that you know, we need a, another argument to go along with the gospel. As he unpacked that, man, I was exposed. I just thought, yep, you, you know, I'm here to do a, a Christian-Muslim debate and to preach the gospel, and you just put your finger on a thing that I'm struggling with right now. Confidence in the gospel. So here's what I want to say. We want to share the gospel, and we want to believe the gospel, point number one, with confidence. We want to believe and share the message with confidence. I notice Paul in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake, for the, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now that greeting is long, it's full of clauses, it's pretty typical to Paul's day and, ages, but, uh, day and age, but, but what I want to suggest to you is there are at least four things in here that, that ought to give us confidence in sharing the message of the gospel. Number one, we ought to be confident in God's calling. Confident in God's calling. See how Paul says there that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ? That word is servant is more accurately translated slave. He's a slave of God. He belongs to God. His life is owed to God. He serves God. And he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, in Paul's case, he's an apostle in a unique sense. He's one of the early foundations of the New Testament. But the word apostle simply means a sent one. And in that broader sense, it, it, it applies to all of us who are ambassadors of Christ. We are sent for the glory of his name to spread this message. And it's striking to me, when you read Paul's letters, he always describes himself in a way like this, a servant of God or a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Uh, an apostle. And, and what strikes me about that is his certainty. His deep, rock-ribbed certainty that he is doing what God has set him apart to do in being a servant of God and being an apostle. As a young Christian, I marveled at this. I really did. 
I would sit having my quiet times reading the Pauline letters, and I would read that, and, and I would go, man, what must it be like to know that kind of certainty, that kind of confidence in your calling? I've only known it in two occasions. Excuse me. The first time I saw my wife, I knew I would marry her. She took some convincing. <laughs> I knew it. And when we moved here to plant this church, I've never known a sense of certainty more powerfully, more sure, more deeply than when the Lord gave me Christy and when the Lord called us here to do this work. We should have confidence that God is at work calling us. Not, not necessarily calling all of us to be pastors or calling all of us to be apostles in that unique sense, certainly, or, or calling all of us to be the same kinds of persons, but there is no less a calling on every Christian life than there was on the Apostle Paul's life. You first call to Christ if you're a Christian, to be a servant of his, to be a messenger of his. And he may have called you to some particular vocation where you spend the, the bulk of your life, whether as a, a counselor in a high school or whether as a property manager or whether as a, a, you know, a, a worker who pulls together events and conferences, any number of things. That's no less a calling, your vocation. And God, I think, would have us have a sense of certainty that grows out of knowing that he has indeed charted a path for us, called us to a labor, not only in our vocation, but also as a church. So I pray you feel called to be a part of Anacostia River Church. It's okay if you don't. Don't get me wrong. I'm not teaching a kind of mysticism here. It's okay if you go, no, I chose to be here. I want to be here. I like being here. But I, you know, the, part, the sky didn't part, you know. And it, and it was kind of hard to come to church this morning because I was sleeping real good. I, you know, I understand that. As I said, I've only felt this sense of calling twice in my own life. But whether you have chosen to be here, or whether you felt led inexplicably to join this mission, I pray that you embrace that and feel that and experience that as a knowing that God is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. That that would be part of the confidence you have in God's gospel call on your life. But now I, I pray also that we have confidence not only in God's calling, but we continue to look at verse 1, confidence in God's sovereign election. You see there, why is Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ? He says, it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect and a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That little word there, elect, is profoundly important for our confidence in the gospel. It means that we're not the only ones working in the spread of the gospel. That God is working. That God is working before us and behind us and in us and through us and over us. That God has elected, that is chosen a people for himself. And notice three things about that people. They will have faith in God. They will have knowledge of the truth. And that knowledge of the truth will lead to a godly life. When we go to work as a church in the spread of the message of the gospel, we don't go to work alone. <laughs> We're joining God in his work. God's the indispensable one, not us. Right? God will bury the worker and carry on the work. 
But what a privilege it is. And what confidence comes from knowing that God has chosen for himself a people. And that people will trust him. And that people will grow in the knowledge of the truth. And their lives will begin to look like his life. It will accord with godliness. Beloved, our mission as a church cannot fail unless we fail to share the message. God's at work in the gospel. Romans 1.16 again. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And Paul says here in, in this text, in verse 1, this same gospel. Notice, it's a gospel that people rely on. They trust, they believe, they have faith. This is not merely the saving faith that brings us to Christ. This is that ongoing faith that trusts Christ no matter what. And they grow in their knowledge. What a wonderful thing that is. That when you become a Christian, you don't have to know everything about what it means to be a Christian. In fact, you can't. None of us do. And if you've been a Christian a long time, beloved, what? You're still learning how to be a Christian, aren't you? But by God's grace, we look back and we see growth, don't we? In our knowledge of God, what he's like, his ways, how he treats us, and, and how he loves us. We, we grow in our knowledge of that, and that has this powerful outcome. We begin to live like God. Our mission can't fail, beloved, because God is at work making for himself a people who will trust him, who will grow in the knowledge of the truth, and who will live like him. Have confidence as you share the message that that's what's going to happen. Number three, have confidence in God's character and promises. Notice how Paul goes on in those next couple of um, clauses in verse two. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. You see his character there? God never lies. That's wonderful news. God never lies. He, he, he never plays tricks with people. He, he never has a little bait and switch. He never deceives people. Uh, he, he, he can only tell the truth. He is the God of truth. And, and his son, Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life. You will, you will never read a thing in God's word that is false. You will never read a promise in God's word that is not true. You, you can trust the character of God, that he's always going to be truthful, he's always going to be faithful, he's always going to keep his word. Whatever he calls us to is good for us. No matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter how many changes it, it, it provokes in our lives, no matter how he rearranges our lives by his word, this we can be sure of, God never lies, ever. And he's given us promises. We can be confident of this promise. You see there how Paul puts it? In hope of eternal life, which God promised before the ages began. Isn't that marvelous? Before the worlds were created, God made a promise that he would give eternal life to people who trusted in his son. Because it was given before the ages began, beloved, it doesn't depend on you or I but it depends upon his character and his promise to keep his word. We can be confident as we share the message of the gospel 
Because we know God's character and we know his promise. Number four, as we share the message of the gospel, we can be confident in God's word. Uh, This just flows right from what we were seeing in verse 2. Notice there in verse 3. Or let me read 2 and 3 together. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. That's a marvelous verse for preachers. It's a marvelous verse for anybody who listens to preaching. Notice, something was manifested in God's word. What was that? I think it goes back to verse 2. It was the hope of eternal life, which is another way of referring to the gospel itself. The gospel was manifested in God's word. But notice, that was through the preaching with which Paul and all preachers have been entrusted. Now, here's here's a very delightful and dangerous truth. It's a delightful and dangerous truth. The preaching of the Word of God is itself the Word of God when it's done accurately. The preaching of the Word of God is itself the Word of God when it's done accurately. Keep your finger there and turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul there is commending the Thessalonians for their faith. He's been talking about how they have received the gospel. And he says this stunning thing in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive what? The word of God, which you what? Heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, and he's saying to Titus here in, 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 in Titus chapter, chapter 1, that his apostolic preaching was in fact the word of God. That God was manifesting in his preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so in his preaching, which was the word of God, was this eternal life which God promised before the worlds began. Now that's, that's delightful, beloved. That means anytime you listen to a faithful preacher who opens God's word line upon line, precept upon precept, and explains it accurately, you are indeed receiving orally the word of God. But it's dangerous. Because anytime you find a man playing craftily and deceitfully and untruthfully with the word of God. He may in very powerful ways deceive people. But we are not those who are lazy about listening to the word of God because we have confidence in it. And we are those who open our Bibles and follow Pastor Thabiti to see whether these things are so. We like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. We want to hear what thus saith the Lord. And, and we love you, Apostle Paul. We love you, Pastor Matt. We love you, Pastor Thabiti. But show it to me in the word of God. And when it's shown, beloved, believe it. Have confidence in it. Rest your hope and your trust in it. We've been called here to share the message of the gospel. Let us do that confidently. So let me ask you a question. Do you lack confidence in the gospel? Do you know what aspect 
of the gospel you lack confidence in if you do? Is it confidence in God's calling? Is it confidence in God's election? Maybe it's confidence in God's character and his promises. Or even confident that the word itself will do the work. Whatever it is, identify it. Draw near to the Lord about it. Pray about it. Confess it. Seek to be confident in that thing for your own soul so that you treasure the fullness of the gospel and the riches of Jesus Christ so that you know the freedom that comes from this confidence. And out of that, pass the message along. Trusting, believing, relying upon God to make it effective in the hearts of our neighbors and friends and co-workers and family. Believe and share the message with confidence. This brings us to the second thing I want to point out here as we think about the, the message of the gospel. is in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Share the message with hope of change. With the hope of change. As I was preparing this sermon, I read a study or read the sort of highlights of a study that was conducted by some researchers at, at Princeton University. They noticed a dramatic increase, or I should put it this way, they noticed a dramatic decrease in the lifespans of middle-aged persons, 30s and 40s, 50s. See, the older I get, the older middle age gets, right? <laughs> I was sitting here deciding whether I was middle-aged or young, if this applied to me or not, but shocking study. They did not expect it. They didn't expect it because for decades, the average life expectancy had been ticking up in the country. And they didn't expect it. They did this study in, in six countries, I think, total. Australia, Canada, France, Germany, UK, and Sweden, seven including the U.S. And, and in all the other countries except the U.S., the lifespan was continuing to go up. But in the U.S., it's been declining. And there was this, another surprise. The causes of the shorter lifespans or the increase in deaths were not the usual causes, like heart disease. Instead, the death rate is on the rise because of higher levels of suicide and greater numbers of drug and alcohol overdoses and the diseases that come from drug and alcohol abuse. In other words, the researchers found that people are increasingly taking their own lives or dying prematurely because they're living with reckless disregard for their health and their safety. Here's another thing. The research found higher rates of other kinds of problems short of death that impact the quality of life. Declines in physical health, problems with mental health, Problems with the ability to even conduct daily activities. One researcher summarized the results for CNN by saying, there's more despair and worse health. The study illustrates the sad reality that we're observing what another researcher called an epidemic of hopelessness. The worst outcomes were experienced by those with the lowest levels of resources, education, job access, health care. In neighborhoods like Crete, in neglected neighborhoods in major cities around our country. And the question is, here we are, a little church of about 100 people, 
We're not a congregation filled with doctors and psychologists. And the question is, what do we have to address an epidemic of hopelessness? I mean, what, what do we do? How can we address or change the situation? I think the answer to that is in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Look there with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. What do we have as a little church of 100? to address hopelessness and despair in our community? The short answer is the gospel. The gospel. And the reason is because of grace. Notice four things about grace in this text. Number one, we have the hope of change, of people changing, communities changing, because grace saves. That's what we see in verse 11. Notice what Paul says there. He says, the grace of God has appeared. You notice this Paul's fascination with appearances here? Earlier in chapter 1, he was talking about an appearance, and here he's talking about appearance again. And this time, grace has shown up. Grace has entered the world. Grace has revealed itself, and it's a particular kind of grace, the grace of God which saves people, which rescues them from the judgment of sin and the judgment of hell, which brings them back from the brink of death and gives them eternal life. Grace saves. Grace is just another word for kindness, undeserved kindness. The grace of God appeared, The undeserved kindness of God appeared in the world when Jesus Christ came into the world. Grace put on flesh. It had a face. It was the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace took action to redeem us, to save us, to rescue us from God's judgment because of our sin. What did it do? Well, it, it lived a, he lived a perfect life in our place, obeying God the Father down to the detail. And then, Having obeyed God fully for us, he died for us on the cross. He took the punishment we deserve so that all of God's anger against the the sin of those who believe in Christ is not poured out on those who believe, it's poured out on Jesus who suffers in our place. And by that sacrifice, that kindness, that mercy, that love of God in the cross, all men may be saved, may be rescued. And here's the thing I know about despair. Despair whispers to you that there is no escape. Hopelessness says to you that there is no other way. There's no way out. It's just going to be like this day after day after day, year after year after year. If anything, it's only going to get worse. But the gospel says, no, God has appeared in the flesh of his son. Kindness, grace has been in flesh. And he has come into the world to change your day, to change your tomorrow, to change your eternity, to save you and me. No, we have hope of change of people changing and communities changing because grace saves. 
And we have hope of change because grace teaches. It's not merely that God rescues us by faith in Christ. Notice what grace does in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's two sides on this coin. Grace teaches us to say no to some things and yes to others. To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, to, to say no to all those ways of living with which God would not be pleased. All those ways of living that actually bring God's judgment upon us. The Bible word for that is sin or transgression. Every time we live in such a way as to disobey God, we break ourselves, beloved. We harm ourselves and we place ourselves in in danger before God. But in his kindness, through his grace, God begins to train saved men and women. He begins to teach you to say no to some things you used to say yes to, doesn't he? He begins to give you new patterns of behavior. Uh, The places you used to go, you don't go to no more, right? The dances you used to do, you don't do no more, right? Uh, The words you used to say, you don't say no more, do you? You have this sense that God is watching you. And you have this sense that God is pleased with you when you speak like him and displeased with you when you speak like Satan. And you didn't know it before, you didn't experience it before, but all of a sudden you you begin to have this sense of another voice in your head. You do stuff and they'd be like, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't right. Look around like, who said that? (laughs) Pretty soon you figure out the voice is in you. And the voice keeps testifying to you that some things are wrong, that some things are displeasing. That's grace training us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That reckless living I was just reading about, that leads to death. And then on the other side of the coin, notice what grace does. It teaches us to live, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, this present age is an age of darkness. This present age is an age of wickedness. Uh, This present age is hard, right? Uh, The world is an unsafe place and a dangerous place, especially for Christians, because the world is opposed to all the things of God. And in this context, grace comes into our lives, and and that little voice tells us not only to say no to certain things, to renounce certain things, but that voice starts to say to us positively, live this way. Live a self-controlled life. Master yourself. Don't give yourself over to your passions and every desire you have. You don't have to live that way. Christ has defeated your sin. He's defeated the power of sin in your life. He's defeated the control of sin in your life. And in, in degrees, day by day, Christ is freeing you to live not being mastered by sin, but mastered by yourself as you submit to Christ. And that grace goes on to tell us not only to live a self-controlled life, but to live, notice there, an upright life, a a righteous life, a a life of integrity. So that what we say matches how we live. And how we live in public matches how we live in secret. That there is an integrity to our lives. We are one person wherever you find us and the same person wherever you find us. And we stand upright before God, following his ways. And notice, not just upright, but Godly, Godlike. 
It's an amazing thing. That God's grace teaches us to live like God himself. Now that's a high calling. That's an amazing thing. That God is coming to the world in the person of his son and he's coming to our life through faith in his son and he is teaching us to live and look like him. This little boy, uh, people used to always tell me, boy, you look just like your daddy. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I met online a young man who turns out to be a nephew of mine. I've never met him before. He didn't know that I existed. Uh, he, my father, and uh, was married before and, and I was born to he and my mom and as those things go sometimes, when you're the son of the other woman, you know, you don't, the, the rest of the family don't sort of cotton to you real close, right? And so I didn't have a real good relationship with him. And they didn't speak of me, apparently, right? And he, he finds me online. He says, man, I, I had a cousin. Tell me about you. And, and I, I looked you up. You look just like me. <laughs> Do you know my dad, which was my brother? And we called him Buddy. He said, you look just like my dad. I said, man, if I had a dollar for every time I was told, I look like Buddy. And we both look just like my father. That's how it is to be in the Christian life. We were orphans, then adopted. And God, by his grace, began to teach us to look like him, to live like him, to live godly lives in this present age. We have hope of change because grace saves and because grace teaches. Now for that to happen, that verse 12, we need three things, beloved. I pray that this would mark us as a church, be part of our culture. We need teaching, we need time, and we need trust. We need to teach the Word of God so that we would know the ways of God. We need time because the kinds of changes that happen in our lives don't happen overnight, do they? God is sometimes gracious to take some things away from us like that. But it is often the case that he just does it very gradually. He takes his time. And this is the thing, beloved. The thing that I think you need to change in your life might not be the thing that God thinks you need to change in your life. And the thing you think I need to sort of give attention to right away and fix right away might not be the thing the Holy Spirit is working on in my life at that moment. And here's the thing about God having time to do what he's going to do, and he's going to do it. He's going to carry it on until the completion of Christ Jesus, beloved. He is more interested in our sanctification than we are. And here's the thing that I know about him. He has a way of knocking over a small thing and causing all the other dominoes to fall. We are so fixed on the big problem. Let's get that fixed. And in a sense, that's right. But God has a way of changing something small and creating a tidal wave in somebody's life. And we got to be the kind of church that's patient enough to let God do what God's going to do. And that requires trust. That requires our trusting each other to God. Yes, we speak the word to each other in love. We, we rebuke and confront and admonish and warn. We teach and we instruct with all hope of change. But, but then we, we kind of stand back and say, but it's God's work. I'm going to let the Lord do that. I'm going to use all the means that he gives me, but I'm not going to rush Jesus. Because when we rush people, we break people. We hurt people. And so we got to learn this difficult balance of holding up the high standard of self-control, uprightness, and godliness in this present age and calling each other to that. But we also have to learn the spiritual discipline of praying and waiting. God does what he does. Let me put it a different way. If we're successful 
at doing what God has called us to do in the community, at reaching our neighbors with the gospel, those who don't yet believe and don't yet know Jesus and who live contrary to God in their sin. If God gives us success, they're going to enter into our worship services, they're going to enter into our lives, more importantly, and they're not going to have everything together, beloved. Just like you ain't got everything together. And I ain't got everything together. We're just going to be walking into some brokenness, beloved. We're just going to be seeing some problems that overwhelm us, that we can't fix. We can lament them as we lamented, many of us, the news of, of Kevin's shooting. And the moment you start to ask yourself the question, how do I fix that, then you're probably going to feel overwhelmed. You can't. I can't. We've got to trust the gospel. And that young man who comes in, we pray, we pray for the salvation of the man who pulled the trigger. We pray he would come here and hear the gospel. Y'all ready for that? Y'all ready for a man who would look at another man down the barrel of a gun and pull the trigger to come here and worship with us? To give him opportunity to hear the gospel and take enough interest in his life and to reject fear enough to, to get to know him and to, and to extend some courtesy and warmth and love to him. Are, are we ready for that? I think we are. And the more we realize that we don't have to have all the answers, the more ready we are for it. The more we're ready to trust God to bless his word and to use us in ordinary acts of kindness and love, the more ready we are for it. The more we think we have to be supermen and superwomen with the fixes, the more likely we're going to stumble and fall in discouragement and despair. No, beloved, grace saves us. Grace teaches us. We have hope of change because grace also inspires us. Look at verse 13. Paul writes there, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I notice there, we, we set this point up by talking about the epidemic of hopelessness that's in the world. And now Paul says here that Christians, unlike the world, we have a blessed hope, a happy hope. But notice now where he puts the hope. He puts the hope beyond the reach of our enemies. It's not a hope in this world and the things of this world. It's a hope of another appearing, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, our hope is in heaven with Christ, and our hope comes to its fulfillment when Christ returns. Again, despair makes you look at this day and think every day after it is going to be exactly the same. But the gospel makes you sort of on this day look out to that day knowing that everything will be changed. When Christ appears, he brings his kingdom. When Christ appears, he brings his reign in righteousness. When Christ appears, he fulfills every promise that he has made to us. And when Christ appears, he has his way of judging the wicked and rewarding the righteous. When this God appears in his glory, we will see him in his glory. And seeing him in his glory, we will be like him. We will be transformed finally and fully into the very image and likeness of Christ. And we will be glorified together with him to enjoy together with him all of the riches of his kingdom and the glories of his presence. That's our happy hope. That Jesus is coming again. He's got a calendar. He's marked a day, and he will not be late. And when he comes, everything that's wrong will be righted. Beloved, we may live this life with 
lots of things wrong for the entirety of this life. There's no easy fixes here. I hate, I really, I, maybe that's, I don't know if that's too strong or not. I really dislike, I really dislike the way Christians talk about the gospel fixes everything. That's true, but not in this sort of cliche way, like take two Bible verses and call me in the morning. Seriously, you're sitting with a woman who's just miscarried a child. It's no medicine to her soul to just say, oh, but just believe the gospel. No, you, you got to actually unpack the gospel. You got to sit with that person as they suffer. You got to lament. There are inconsolable things in this world. There are things we won't comfort with easy Christianese. But we must enter into as fellow sufferers and travelers with the hope that this world does not have the last say. Christ does, and another world is coming where babies don't die, and sons aren't shot, and sisters aren't lost. Another world is coming where doctors are not needed, and no reports of cancer, no reports of diabetes, no reports of high blood pressure. Well, there will be no weapons that anyone can use to take their life where life itself will be to the full and as it really is. Our happy hope is that Jesus is coming. and God, by his grace, teaches us to put our happiness in heaven. And grace teaches us one last thing. We won't say much about this because we're going to have a whole sermon on it. The same grace that saves us, the same grace that teaches us, the same grace that inspires us to look heavenward, this same grace also teaches us to do the work of God. You see it there in verse 14, grace teaches us to work. God, what does God want in saving us? Well, he wants a people for himself. Well, what kind of people? Well, a people that he has redeemed from all lawlessness or sin, a people that he's purified for himself, who are for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Beloved, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I, I, I want you to understand there are many ways that we could define Christian, what it is to be a Christian, but maybe this is the sweetest. A Christian is someone who belongs to God, whom God has loved and owned as his special possession. There are those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe that he is the Son of God, that he died for their sins, that he was raised from the grave three days later, and that he's coming again as, as this great blessed hope to bring a kingdom. A Christian is someone who believes all of that, and in believing all of that, by God's grace, not by works that they have done, they become God's people, owned by God and loved by God. And that's what we offer you. Not, not a new religion with new rules and new regulations and and hopefully not a bunch of judgmental hypocrites trying to just sort of criticize you for what you've got wrong. And trust me, we, we know we're hypocrites. We know we're imperfect. We know we're imperfect. We're trying to learn to focus on our own imperfections. But we do want to encourage you that your life could be so much more than that, so much greater than giving in to sin and giving in to hypocrisy that Christ will redeem you from lawlessness and purify you 
and make you his own if you turn from your sin and place your faith in him and follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. And he has a work for you to walk in, a purpose for you that brings him glory and brings you joy. If you want to know more about that, talk to any of the pastors, any of the Christian friends who invited you this morning, anybody who's sitting next to you like they know something about the Bible. Now, if you ask a question and they don't, just move to the next person, all right? We, we want to help you discover this Jesus and live in his love. So here's the question, ARC. Do we have hope of change for the people in our neighborhood, for ourselves? Do we have hope of change for the circumstances in our lives and, and in our community? We have hope of change for the institutions here, our schools and nonprofit organizations and other places. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a message of God's grace, gives us hope for change. Let's share the message in that hope. Finally, number three, let's share the message with humility. With humility. Look with me in chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Apostle Paul writes there, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the words of God. He says, for we ourselves, he's talking about Christians now. Even himself as an apostle, as a leader of the church, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's some biography, isn't it? That's true of all of us. You don't have to say amen. You say ouch. That's true. That's true of all of us. Before we knew Christ, did we not disobey our parents? Yeah. Did we not do foolish things? Yeah, we did. Did we not live to serve various pleasures? Uh, some would have been relatively innocent pleasures in too much quantity. Some would have been darker pleasures that you really don't talk about in polite company. But that was us. We're passing our days in malice and envy. We go every day, we went every day bouncing between anger and jealousy. You know, you know how it gets expressed. I can't stand so-and-so. Right? That's, that's one of the most frequent sentences you're going to hear from middle school on up. Right? I can't stand him. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. Like he's like he cool because he got them new joy and got a new joy. Yeah. Malice and envy. Malice and envy. And we don't just naturally grow out of it. If we don't meet Christ, what do we do? We grow up, we maybe get a, a high school degree or, or a college degree, and then we get a job, and we're in the workplace. Look at it. Look at it. Look at it. Thanks, he's cute with that little dress on. You know? We ain't changed since the playground. Not, not by our own strength. Not by our own strength. We passed our days in malice and envy. That's the old way of life. We, we were hating folks, and they were hating us, and we were good with it. Stop me when I lie. We were good with it. And this verse reminds us not to forget our past. Now, there is past tense what we were. Well, not that any longer, but it is what we were. 
right? And it's that knowledge of what we were that keeps us from being self-righteous Pharisees with others who were just like we were, right? And it's that knowledge of what we were that reminds us that we are not saviors but sinners. Christ is the only savior. We get to point to him. Growing up in Sunday mornings, many households like mine, on the R&B stations, they didn't, they didn't play R&B on Sunday morning before lunchtime. It's gospel. Oh, it's gospel. Oh, boy. Somebody know, right? Somebody know. Everybody got religion on Sunday morning, right? Even, even the DJ, right? But 12 o'clock, you start bumping, right? And, and I, I, you know, there's some songs I'll never forget. I can't sing them because I, I, I can't carry a tune. But there's some songs I'll never forget. Y'all know this one? I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can say anybody. That's what we are, beloved. We're just nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody who can say anybody. That, that song has the right posture. That's the posture that a Christian ought to have. Remembering what we were, what we were saved from that we are in our own sort of selves, we are nobodies. We got nothing to offer to God that would make God impressed with us. Just nobodies. And how wonderful it is he's given us this privilege of telling everybody about this somebody, Jesus, who can save anybody. And that's what Paul comes to when he comes to the, to the next four verses there, verses four to seven. So we want to be, we want to share this message that I said with humility because we remember our sin, but we want to share this message with humility because we think of how great God's salvation is. Notice what he says, verses four to seven. But, <laughs> that's what we were. Then you get one of the most important words in biblical literature. But, But, there's a change, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, there's again, appeared. He saved us. I think Paul is marveling right here. He saved us. Important phrase right here, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So much in these few verses. Let me just summarize them really quickly. Number one, verses four and five, God the Father saved us. We did not save ourselves. That should should humble us. Not because of righteousness that we have done, but because of his mercy, he saved us. His mercy means he treated us better than our sins deserve. He was kind despite the fact that we didn't, we didn't deserve it. God the Father saved us. We did not save ourselves. Number two, God the Holy Spirit regenerated and renewed us. That word regenerated means born again. You've heard of born again Christians? That's the only kind of Christian it is. Uh, when we become Christians, God, the Holy Spirit, does something to us. He raises us from death in sin to life in Christ. We are born new creatures, and he renewed us, you see there. Holy old stuff is gone. It's being washed away, and behold, he's making all things new. 
God the Father saved us. God the Holy Spirit renewed us. God the Son justified and adopted us in verse 7. He gave himself for us. And in that sacrifice, we are justified or declared right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way to be right with God is to put our trust in him. And that's by his grace, by his kindness, not by our effort, our work. And as a consequence, we become heirs. You see that there? We, we become members of God's family and we become heirs of God's kingdom. In other words, an heir is someone who receives their, their parents' estate when their parents die. The marvelous thing here is God never dies. God never dies. He just brings us into his estate and he gives us part of it. We become heirs in his kingdom and co-heirs with Christ. It's a humbling thing that the God of the universe should go through such effort as to sacrifice his son to save sinners such as we and to give us an eternal home in his kingdom. Because of this gospel, we can share the message with confidence. We can share the message with hope of change. We can share the message with humility. We can experience this confidence in our own soul and know that by that same message, others will be brought to Christ. We can have this hope in our own soul. For to be a Christian is not to be someone who's perfect. It's to be someone who's hoping still in God's grace. And we can share that hope with others. And in our souls, we can have produced in us that most God-like quality of humility. And in that lowliness and meekness, which looks like Christ, we can go out and share with others how it is he saved us and changed us and see them come into the joy of this salvation. So maybe we should end this way with three broad application questions. And I want to leave for you in your time this week with Christ, to work through. Now, keep your, keep your bulletins. Don't lose them on the way out of the church. Don't, don't sit your notes in the stack of other notes and forget about them, as I'm oftentimes guilty of. Right? I want you to live with these texts this week. Memorize them this week. Hide God's Word in your heart. But meet with God on these questions as we think about our calling to share the message of the gospel in this neighborhood. Number one, how will I grow in my knowledge of God and the gospel? How will I grow in my knowledge of God and the gospel? It's the only time you hear me quote Friedrich Nietzsche. But he, had, he said something once that I really love. He says, a man with no plan is no man at all. Right? Or to use the language of my background in psychology, uh, in industrial psychology, you know, what gets measured is what gets done. Right? So what's your plan? What's your plan for growing in the knowledge of God and enjoying the goodness of the gospel? Will you read particular books that you've been laying aside for a while or that you've heard about? Maybe you should join a small group, plug into a small group, or lead a small group. Nothing like teaching others God's Word for helping us grow in God's Word. 
Right? I, I'm convinced. I, first time I heard someone say this, I didn't know what they meant. I thought it was ludicrous, but I, I heard a pastor that I love and respect say uh, when he thought about being in pastoral ministry or not being in pastoral ministry, he was convinced he wasn't holy enough to not be in pastoral ministry. Oh, what? You should be holy to be in the ministry, the little legalist in me said. And I discovered what he meant. There's so much grace that comes to my soul in preparing to teach you that I, I kind of feel like I can't live without that. that. That routine, that opportunity, that privilege you give me, oh, it, it does things in my soul that I'd be afraid for my soul if I didn't have it. So how, how are you going to grow this year in the knowledge of God and the gospel? Number two, uh, how will you grow as an evangelist? Now raise your hands if you think you're a great evangelist. That's what I thought. <laughs> None of us. None of us. I only had my hand up as an example trying to sort of help you know what raising your hand means. But, you know, who of us feels like a great evangelist? Not even Paul felt like a great evangelist. The greatest missionary theologian in the history of the church would write in Ephesians chapter 6, pray for me that I might open my mouth boldly and proclaim the gospel as I ought. He struggled to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel. The greatest missionary evangelist theologian in the history of the church had the same problem I had. I guess many of you have. So how are we going to grow as evangelists? In our, in our own circles, in our own spheres, in, in the vocations and the callings that the Lord has given us, with the opportunities and the resources that he's given us, how, how are we going to grow? And this is the thing. You don't need to compare yourself to Paul or Jeremy or Thabiti or Matt. You just need to simply be before the Lord and say, Lord, how would you lead me? And again, maybe that's reading a book like, See John Miller's book, A Faith Worth Sharing. It's one of the most encouraging books on evangelism I've ever read. Because in some sense, it's not a book on evangelism. It's kind of his autobiography told through evangelistic conversations he had in his life. It's an amazing read, A Faith Worth Sharing. It, it will bless you. It will encourage you. Maybe you'll read something like that or another book on evangelism. Maybe you'll join the team on Saturdays that goes out to do the work of evangelism. John Hill, raise your hand. Jahil Richards, Pastor Jahil, uh, has been leading that group since he's come. And, and there's nothing like actually doing the work of evangelism that helps us grow as evangelists. Right? So we don't want to stop at book knowledge. We actually want to put it into practice. Or maybe you'll join a block group. Uh, these are groups that we have talked about before that I think we need to gin up. We need to rev up. Uh, where we would have um, folks who would host a small group in the, in the neighborhood be comprised of some members of the church, but would have the active intention of inviting neighbors who don't yet know Christ to come and join those groups and study the scripture and think through the gospel and to pray for one another and to serve the mercy needs in the community around us. Where's Tim Boston? Tim, raise your hand, brother. Tim, he said, I said, raise your hand. Right. So Tim leads a, a block group just two blocks that way. All right. We need more block group leaders. I would love for us to be able to put pins in the map throughout Southeast D.C. on blocks where we have members whose homes and hearts are open to share the message of the gospel with their neighbors. Let's see if we can't dot the map until it's the blood red of Christ's sacrifice. Maybe you'll join a block group or maybe you'll attend a conference or a training on evangelism. So, but just ask yourself the question, how will I grow given who I am and where I am and what God has given me? How will I grow as an evangelist? And finally, how will I actually share the message with others? How will I actually share the message with others? 
I do not believe every Christian is a gifted evangelist. I don't. I don't even think every pastor is a gifted evangelist. That's why Paul would write to Timothy and say, do the work of an evangelist, right? Scared Timothy, timid, timid Timothy. But I do believe every Christian has some responsibility on some level to see the gospel go forward, right? So the question is, how will we share the message with others? Here's what I want to offer you to, to do in your quiet time with the Lord this week. Make a list of three to five people that you'll pray for. We can all pray, and that's evangelistic work. Nothing happens without prayer. The power of God is most manifest in response to our prayer, not our wisdom. So let's start on our knees and our face bowed before God. Then list of three to five people that you will pray for regularly that they would be saved. Whether, whether the Lord sends somebody else to them or the Lord sends you, that the message of the gospel would get to them and they would believe. Right? Second thing is, then pray for opportunities to share. Right? Ask the Lord to make divine appointments to share the gospel with others. If, if we're praying and readying ourselves in prayer, you'd be surprised at how often he answers that. Number three then, pray for your own confidence, hope, and humility. Right? The three things we've been thinking about in this sermon, that you'd have confidence in the message of the gospel, that you'd have hope that the gospel will change people, and that very humbly we all would go forth bearing this news. And number four, plan. Plan when and how you will share with them. Could be inviting them to your house over dinner. Could be starting a, a block group, as we were talking about a moment ago, or a Bible study, a, a, just a short six-week, seven-week Bible study. Say, hey, let's get together and think about who Jesus is. And it can be as informal as all that. You bring your questions, and I'll try to answer them. If I don't know them one week, then I'll study and come back and get help, and we'll answer them the next week. Just plan how you would do that. Or maybe you're, like, um, maybe you're like Matt Chandler's friend who led him to Christ, a fellow football player who just came up to Matt in the locker room after football practice one day, says, I'm going to share Jesus with you. You tell me when and where. <laughs> now, I don't have that in me, really. But Matt's now a Christian. And that brother had a plan, right? Well, whatever your plan is, it doesn't have to be the same. Pray that the Lord would give you one. And then finally, let us remember to invite uh, our neighbors and friends to church or to Bible study. That could be your plan until you feel more confident or more hopeful or more humble even. Bring them here. The guys who preach from this pulpit will work every Sunday to preach the gospel and make it clear. Uh, bring them to Bible study. The Bible study teachers are working to know God's word to make this message clear and to help people understand the blessing and joy and hope of following Christ. We have been called to share the message of the gospel, to have the gospel drive everything we do, to have it drive our confidence as a church and as a ministry, to have it drive our sanctification as we grow in godliness, to have it drive our mission and work as we reach out to our neighbors. The engine of this church must be the gospel. The treasure of this church must be the gospel. The sun in the solar system of this church is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died in the place of sinners, was raised from the grave three days later so that everyone who would repent of their sins and believe in him would have eternal life. 
be saved from judgment, adopted into God's family, made an heir to the kingdom of heaven, and would know the hope and the glory of his appearing and his, his presence forevermore. We have nothing if we do not have the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we give you grace and or we give you praise for your glorious grace. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for this message which has saved those of us who believe and has set us aside for eternal life and the everlasting enjoyment of your love. But we know that your gospel wasn't meant to be preached until it reached us and then stopped. But your gospel was meant to reach us and pass through us to others whom you have called and elected according to your grace. That you have appointed not only that some would be saved, but that you have appointed also the means of preaching and sharing to be the way in which they come to be saved. Lord, never let us fall for that, that false saying, preach the gospel always and if you have to, use words. That's not the way the gospel goes forward. Let us always preach the gospel with words and with the life that conforms to godliness. Give us opportunity. Give us courage. Give us hope. Take this community into your hands, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.